So back in 2011, the Twin River School District in Central California was faced with uh, some dire financial uh, uh, cuts that had to be made because the money simply um, wasn't there. And so as they started looking at the programs they could cut, they started cutting one extracurricular program after another, and it still wasn't enough. And so they had to cut even some of the basic necessities like heat. In fact, this story came to light because a photo went viral when a student took a picture of the thermostat that read 44 degrees inside the classroom. I mean, kids were coming to school bundled up in Snuggies. I mean, you can get away with that in California. You could never do that here in Massachusetts. It would be 20 degrees in that room. But it was under these circumstances that this school district in financial need was approached by a company named Education Funding Partners. I'm going to call them EFP for short. So as they approached them, the firm promised that they could bring the district as much as $500,000 in private money each year at no cost to them. If that sounds too good to be true, it's probably because it is. So here's what would happen. EFP would find these corporate sponsors to advertise inside the schools to generate more lucrative um, income than any bake sale or gimmicky fundraiser. Because see, what they had to realize was that their greatest fundraising asset, simply stated, was their students. Advertisers have long coveted direct access to the young and impressionable. See, if a corporation can establish a meaningful connection, building this kind of brand awareness and loyalty at an early age, it can produce a lifetime of payoff. And so for their clients, EFP brokered um, unparalleled access directly to engage this K-12 market with a chance to influence future consumers for life. For Twin Rivers, this was an easy win-win situation. They could get the funding they need. They could reinstate the programming, turn the heat back on. And so after they made this deal, ads started to appear on the lockers and embedded into the hallway floors. TV screens in the hallways started to pair school announcements with commercials. McDonald's even slapped their logo on the report cards Uh, So every home had like a glaring reminder that if you made good grades, you would qualify for a happy meal. Now, don't hate on Twin Rivers. They're not the only school district in America to ever sell out to corporate sponsorship. And this is just one anecdote of many uh, of how our life has become bombarded with advertising and commercials. If you think about your own life, how often is it that you are unreachable? away from a screen or a device of some kind without some opportunity for someone trying to sell you something. Tim Wu in his book, The Attention Merchants, writes this. It's no coincidence that ours is a time afflicted by widespread sense of attentional crisis, one captured by the phrase homo distractus. I love that. A species of ever shorter attention span known for compulsively checking his devices. Who hasn't sat down to check one email only to end up on a long flight of ad-laden, click-baited fancy and emerge, shaking your head, wondering, where did the hours go? See, we can't go to school, eat a meal. Sometimes we can't even have a conversation with somebody without subtly or aggressively um, having our attention pulled away. 
we experience distraction sickness. That's a, a new term sociologists have come up with to describe the, the, uh, the, the effect of this constant demand for our attention and how it inhibits our ability to focus our attention on what really matters. Tim Wu in his book goes on to say, we must reflect that when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we've paid attention to, whether by choice or default. We are at risk without quite fully realizing it of living lives that are less our own than we imagine. Friends, our attention is one of our most valuable assets. Our day-to-day experience, our very lives are what we agree to give our attention to. Whoever or whatever has your attention, if you are locked into that, they have access to your time, your talents, your treasures. They have access to your very heart. So today, wisdom asks, uh, calls us to ask this most important question, who or what has your attention? And as we work through Proverbs 8, which is on page 532 in the Bibles around you, we're gonna see three things. The first thing we're gonna see is our attention is aimed by our desires. Whatever you desire, that's what you focus and aim your attention. Your aim, the the attention is something that you aim and you direct it at something and you will direct it at whatever your heart desires most. Second, we're gonna see that our attention is sustained by diligence. If you wanna maintain attention, if you wanna stay locked into something, uh, you have to have diligence. Our life is full of distractions and detours and wisdom is going to teach us this morning that diligence is required in order to keep our attention fixed on God and his path for wisdom. And finally, the last thing we're gonna see is that our attention is fueled by, it's propelled by delight. When we delight in something, it will fuel our desire to want more. So as we consider uh, who or what we give our attention to, we're going to see that our attention is aimed by our desires. It's sustained by diligence and it's fueled by delight. Look with me at Proverbs 8 verse 1. Solomon writes these words, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. So Solomon, right off the bat, he's in the middle of these lectures to his his sons. He begins by creating this word picture. Wisdom is personified as a woman calling out to anybody who will listen. The text says that she cries out to to the men and to the children of men, which is kind of an ancient Hebrew idiom, which really means all humanity. Her cry is going out to everyone, anyone who will listen. You see, wisdom doesn't favor a particular race. Wisdom doesn't favor a particular class, sex, age, or even your tribal or political allegiances. Wisdom will seek disciples from anybody who will listen. Wisdom calls out to both the learned and the unlearned. She calls out to the foolish and to to those who are starting to begin their journey on the path of wisdom. Wisdom calls out to even those who would be considered wise. Anyone who will listen can receive and gain from wisdom. So as you're traveling on this journey of life, the text tells us wisdom is going to strategically place herself so that you can hear her. She's gonna, the text says she gets to the, to the high points along the way, 
getting up high amplifies her voice, like the microphone is amplifying my voice. She's, she's going to be in these high places so that the voice and the call of wisdom goes out. The text tells us she stands at the crossroads, these intersections of our lives where we meet people, we make decisions, and we chart the path of our life. We come to a crossroad. We have to go right or left. Wisdom is there, giving us instruction on which way to go. Solomon tells us wisdom is at the gate of of the city as you enter. The city gates in the ancient world were these places of high traffic and high conversation. These would have been places where all of the important decisions and business transactions were made. It was here that people would settle disputes. It was here that they would engage in politics. It was here that you would enter into business arrangements. And wisdom says, I'm even there, available to help you as you're making those decisions, as you form relationships, and as you continue on your journey. Now, why would wisdom come to all these places, the crossroads, the city gates, the, 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 the pathways as your journey? Well, it's because the, the choices and decisions we make over time chart the course of your life. You are where you are today because of the thousands and upon thousands, maybe millions of decisions that you've made in your life. And wisdom knows if you can make key wise decisions in those key moments, then it sets you up to be in the best possible position to thrive and flourish. Wisdom is also here because it's at these moments where the competition for our attention is fiercest. So what do I mean by attention? The best definition I've come across was put forth by William James in his landmark work, The Principles of Psychology. He said this, attention is a withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with others and is a condition which has a real opposite in the confused, dazed, scatterbrained state which in French is called distraction. So you didn't know you were gonna learn a new word today, distraction. Comes from French. So let me modernize that for for you. What he's saying is attention is the skill of withdrawing from everything to focus on some things. And the opposite of attention is called distraction. It's this state of being confused and dazed and scatterbrained. I I would guess we've all felt that feeling before where you just feel like I can't get focused today. I'm distracted. I feel like I'm just easily pulled in, in all directions. You might have even said today I feel scatterbrained. It's the opposite of attention. He would go on to say, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items which I notice shape my mind without selective interest. Experience is utter chaos. The art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. So you can't pay attention to everything. You can't. You've got to choose what's most important and dial in. That's attention. And friends, there is a war for our attention. We're being bombarded from every direction. And we need to learn the art of knowing what is non-important, what is non-essential, what's irrelevant. What do we need to overlook so that we can focus our attention on what really matters? Because like James said, What we agree to attend to, what we choose to focus on, what we pay attention to will determine the purpose, the meaning, and the value of our lives. And Solomon is looking at his boys and he's saying, sons, can you hear the voice of wisdom? Are you listening to her? She's there. She's not hiding. It's not that wisdom is hard to find. It's that wisdom is hard to what? Pursue. 
It's hard to pursue. It's hard to focus our attention on it. See, in the competition of our attention, Solomon is asking, who or what will you listen to? Who or what will get your focus? Who or what will you pay attention to? This morning, wisdom is saying, pay attention to me. I will point you in the right direction. Aim your attention on me. Look at verse five. She says, oh, simple ones, learn prudence. Oh, fools, learn sense. What is she saying? She's saying wisdom can teach us prudence. It's not one of those words we use a whole lot anymore, but it's a really good word. Prudence means to make sound judgments. It means to be able to uh, 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 know the resources you have and to use them well. It means avoiding unnecessary risks and wastes. It, it means being patient, not reckless. It can teach us when to, when to take the right calculated risk. Wisdom can teach us sense. This is one of those um, Hebrew words that if you were to translate it literally, it says, learn heart. The English equivalent to that is take this to heart. She's saying uh, uh, store this down into your heart. In order for you to gain wisdom, you have to have a teachable heart. If you feel like you already have it all figured out, you've probably already tuned me out. You don't have a teachable heart. You're not, you're not receptive to hearing these words of wisdom. Wisdom is out there calling, but you've got it all figured out. So there's no reason for you to listen. Lady Wisdom says, as you walk on your journey of life, as you make decisions, as you enter into relationships, I will be there to help. I can teach you discernment so that you can make wise decisions and use your resources well. I can help you avoid making unnecessary risk. I can tell you when it's the right time to take risk, but you got to be teachable. You have to, be, you have to want it. You have to desire it. You have to see that there is value in the wisdom of God. You must desire it. And that's exactly where she goes in verse six. She says here, for I will speak noble things and from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words in my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twist, twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and write to those who find knowledge. Why should we listen to wisdom? Why is it valuable? Listen to how she boldly describes her words. Noble, right, truth, righteous, straight. She says, there's nothing wicked about my words. There's nothing twisted about them. There's nothing crooked about them. Now that is a bold claim in our culture of relativity. Right? What does our culture say? Hey, you do you. You get to decide what is right for you. You decide, you determine what is good. You get to define what truth itself is. You define what is beautiful and what is not. And these verses confront that ideology and say, no, that is an utter lie. See, truth isn't relative to your whim or mine. Real wisdom is true because it comes from the God who himself is truth. And all his words, all his wisdom is true. See, something, you can call something true, good, or beautiful to the degree that it aligns with the character and nature and person of God. Any deviation from that, and it starts to lose its truth, goodness, and beauty. That's why for the Christian, our worldview is grounded in, supported by, standing on, our morality is on the word of God. 
Wisdom says when you really begin to understand wisdom, when you see God's word for what it is, you start to live it out. You will start to go, it is good. It is true. It is beautiful. And when you start to practically see that in your life, you'll realize it's more valuable than anything. Believers who take God seriously pour themselves over his word because they know in it are the words of life. And they want their life shaped by it. They want their morality grounded by it. This is the firm foundation to stand on. Look what she says in verse 10. She says, take my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Do you hear what she just said? Wisdom says my instruction is more valuable than silver, gold, or jewels. If it was written today, she might say, my instruction is more valuable than a deep bank account, a diversified stock portfolio, and waterfront property on Martha's Vineyard. As valuable as all those things are, as pleasant as they might be, wisdom says nothing, nothing could compare with wisdom, with true wisdom. I think it's interesting that in our idiom, when we talk about attention, we often talk about it with financial uh, language, right? We talk about giving our attention to someone or paying attention to something. That's financial language, and it's right. See, because inherent in the phrase of giving our attention to something is a realization that is valuable. There is a, there is a transaction going on of value. When you give someone or something your attention, you are giving up one of the most valuable assets you have and it does come with a cost because if you decide to give your attention to one thing what does that mean it means you can't give your attention to this other thing over here when we pay attention to something we're making a decision in that moment to say yes to that person or thing and no to everything else there's an opportunity cost associated with the transaction of our attention, good or bad. If you pay attention to the right things, you're making a very good decision. If you pay attention to the wrong things, you are making a very costly decision. Wisdom then is calling for our attention and to do that, to make that decision at the level of our desires. See, it's not enough just to casually think or casually believe it's valuable to go, yeah, 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 God's word is good, I, I, I know that. You can't just casually approach it. You have to make a settled commitment in your heart that nothing is more desirable or valuable than the wisdom of God. Or another way to say it is this. What you give your attention to is also the same thing that you give your affection to. Because your attention is aimed by the desires of your heart. It's at the level of your affections. That's just that Puritan word to talk about the things that you love, the things that you value, the things that you treasure. When we give our attention to what we truly love and, and value, we're giving our attention to it. Because at the end of the day, every one of us, I don't need to know anything about your background. I just need to look at you and go, you're human, I'm human. Every single one of us chooses uh, by, by, by our desires. We are always making decisions um, uh, uh, of things that we perceive will give us the most pleasure in order to also move away from the things that we think will give us pain. That's how your will works. You're, you're, you're always making decisions to go, I think this decision, this pathway will lead to my, uh, my pleasure and my joy. And I'm also trying to avoid uh, uh, matters of pain. 
That's how the will works. As the decision calculus is going on at the level of your heart, you choose to move closer to pleasure and further away from pain. Even when you make a decision that has some pain, like working out, you desire the body that comes with working out, right? Even though you're moving towards something that's painful, the end result of that is something you desire more. So you're willing to even work through that pain to get the object of your greatest desire. That's every day of your life you are doing that decision calculus. So the real question is, what do you think in your life will truly give you genuine, lasting pleasure? And what will truly keep you from the worst pain? And when you have that question answered, you have answered the question of your greatest desire. Whatever the answer to that question is, is what you, truth, is what you truly desire. And it's there that you will aim your attention. Every one of us is wired that way. You will aim your attention and your affections at whatever you desire most. Not what you say you desire most, but what you actually desire most. So much, in fact, that the best way to tell what someone desires most is to look at the actions of their life because that's where they're aiming their attention. Now, this gets tricky for us because we think about the value of things. It could, be, it could be subjective, right? Depending on our age, depending on our life stage, circumstances, our system for assessing value can change. Let me show you what I mean. Imagine right now, and I don't have this, by the way, but imagine right now I was going to offer you either a cup full of water or a cup full of diamonds. Okay, these are like fair trade good diamonds, okay? All right? Don't want to get political here. All right. So on one hand, water is necessary for your survival. But given the choice right now, I'm sure every one of you would choose the cup full of diamonds. Why? We have easy access to water. We've actually provided enough water for everybody in here to drink to their full. There's some on the back table right now. And as I can see, I'm not a doctor, but it doesn't look like anybody's dying of thirst right now. And so because your access to rare jewels uh, is minimal and your access to water is high, you would choose the diamonds right now. Everyone would. But if the circumstances were changed, if, you were, if we were all in the desert, dying of thirst, offered the cup of diamonds or the cup of water, every single person in here would choose that cup of water. You wouldn't even have to think about it. You would grab the water every time. It's the water diamond paradox. See, everybody, depending on the situation and circumstance, uh, uh, that's how value is subjective, right? It, it, it depends on necessity and access. But Proverbs 8 is saying something profound. It's saying there is something in this world that is never subjectively valuable. There is something whose value never change, and it is God himself. It does not matter your situation. It does not matter your circumstance, whether you're here in an air-conditioned room in Waltham, Massachusetts, or in the blazing sun in the middle of the Sahara Desert. God's value never changes. He's never subjective to the whims of situation and circumstance. The book of Proverbs is grounded on the principle that true wisdom begins and ends with a relationship with God. Solomon, when he began the book, said the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is this, the fear of the Lord. You begin there and you're on the right journey. You don't get that right, you never get it right. 
The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, where God becomes your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. And when you believe that, when he is those things for you, you will aim your attention to him. God is never subjectively valuable. He's always absolutely, objectively, and infinitely valuable. That's why we should value God above all else, because his value never diminishes. A life of true wisdom then realizes that God and a life connected to him is the most valuable and therefore the most desirable pursuit you could ever give your undivided attention to. So if we're going to live a life of wisdom, we must aim our attention, aim our desires, aim our affections on God. Next, we need to see that our attention is sustained by diligence. This next section, uh, section, verses 12 through 21, outlines the benefits and the advantages of obtaining wisdom. So it's not just that it's uh, true, it's actually beneficial for you. Now, before we outline the benefits, we need to look at verse 17, because in verse 17, wisdom unveils one of the fundamental keys to sustaining our attention on God and his wisdom. Look with me at verse 17. Wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. First, you have to love, value, and desire wisdom. That's what we just talked about. So you aim your affections and your attention in the right place. And now she says, in order to sustain that attention, you have to seek wisdom diligently. Say that word with me, diligently. Diligence means intentionality. It means focus. It means determination, Diligence is not a passive thing. It's not something you sit back on. It's, it's active. It's not simply making a decision while you're here in church today and then assuming it's settled. Diligence is making a thousand decisions a day to stay focused on the one thing. It's seeing that you're starting to stray and going, no, 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 I've got a course correct. I've got to make a decision to keep my focus narrow and course correct. Now think about it. We are 27 minutes into this sermon right now. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to out yourself. Plead the fifth. But who has given their attention to something else already? I mean, this is a sermon about attention. And almost every one of you has turned your attention to something else. I'm preaching and I've thought about other things. I don't even know how that works. Right? You've made a comment to a neighbor. You've checked a notification on your phone. You started to zone out. Right? Our voluntary control is weak. We aren't great at paying attention to anything, let alone the things we've made a decisive commitment to. We're pulled into distractions at any given moment. It requires diligence. And wisdom says there are benefits to you if you will be diligent. Now, as I read these off, we gotta remember, we are in the book of Proverbs. These are not promises or guarantees. The book of Proverbs is more uh, principial. They're principles about how life often works when we live according to God's design. These are not guarantees about how life always works. You with me on that? All right. So let's quickly look at some of the benefits of wisdom. Number one, you have a life marked by wisdom. Don't overlook that. Verse 12, I wisdom dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. When we diligently seek God's wisdom, guess what happens? You get it. Your life begins to be shaped by his wisdom. Depending on your capacity and God's uh, gracious gift towards you, you will grow in discernment. You'll grow in knowledge. 
through studying God's word and prayer, you have access to the counsel of God, which gives insight into our lives as we're making the very many decisions of our life. As you diligently seek wisdom, he doesn't withhold from you. You get it, and your life becomes shaped by it. Number two, as you grow in God's wisdom, you will begin to have a moral backbone. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. I love this strong language. It's a moral backbone. When we seek God's wisdom, our moral compass becomes aligned with his so that we hate the things he hates and we love the things he loves. A lot of us have moral scoliosis, just a bent back. We're willing to to compromise on some things and as your life becomes uh, aligned with God's, it straightens your back up. He puts steel in your back so that you have a moral backbone. You become humble and you seek to live lives that are marked by God's morality and love. Number three, leadership and godly oversight. She says, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles and all who govern justly. We find that when we diligently seek God's wisdom, we put ourselves in a place where God can bless us with positions of leadership. And that provides an opportunity for us to lead like God leads with justice and righteousness. Number four, a life of blessing. She says, riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. When we diligently seek God's wisdom, we are putting ourselves in the best possible position to experience a life of blessing, blessed both by the invaluable riches of a life connected to God and also a life that's blessed by actual riches and wealth and righteousness. Again, this is not a promise that God will make you rich if you follow him. Trust me, that's not a guarantee. Our motivation to journey on a path of wisdom and righteousness is not to get rich. If your motivation and your desire to follow God is so that you can become rich, I promise you, he he knows that evil motivation and he will not give you the desires of your heart. Riches and wealth are God's to give. We don't own anything. He owns everything. Everything in the world is God's and he dispenses it and gives it as he desires. Your godly living does not coerce God. It does not force God in any way, shape, or form. You cannot coerce him. He is sovereign and powerful and your good deed does not uh, coerce him to give you a dollar. God determines to give financial blessings as he sees fit. Now what this is saying is foolish decision-making will make it difficult to experience a life of financial blessing. And at the same time, as God so chooses, he often does financially bless those who live a life after him. Number five, faithfulness to the end. When you live a life marked by wisdom, look what she says. I walk in the ways of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. We see that when we diligently seek God's wisdom, we become faithful to the end. And that's the goal of every life uh, that follows God. We want to get to the end. We want to finish well. And when we finish well, there is an inheritance given to all who love God. If you're looking at your um, family line, you're going, I don't have an inheritance. 
I can look at you and say, if you're in the line of Christ, you do have an inheritance, and it's unbelievable. First Peter tells us our inheritance is unfading, imperishable, undefiled, preserved in heaven, awaiting all who are faithful to the end. You want to get there? Have a life marked by wisdom. Those are some of the benefits of diligently seeking God's wisdom. Now, what are some of the distractions that will pull you away from a diligent life pursuing him? Now, there's like an endless number of them, but I want to give you three categories that I think we often face as a church. Number one, love of the world. It's a primary distraction. This is a, a garden distraction. This one goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's what our first parents were tempted by. It's that age-old temptation that ever-increasing joy in your life is found outside of God and his purposes for your life. That was the temptation in the garden that lured our first parents to eat the forbidden fruit. They believed the lie that joy and happiness were found by going around God, not in God. And this is the same lie we believe every time we turn away from God and turn towards the pleasures of the world, thinking God is holding out on me. He is withholding from me. And so I need to get around God, go away from God to get the thing I really need to be complete that God is keeping from me. This happens when we compare our lives to the people around us. We start to look at the things they have. We start to look at the life they have, and we want to enjoy that lifestyle too. And we go, God, why aren't you giving it to me? We think, if I could just have more money, or if I could just have more status, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get more pleasure, or whatever it is for you, your heart can fill in the blank. It's when we choose immediate gratification over long-term satisfaction. It's love of the world, and it's a primordial distraction. It goes all the way back to the beginning. We have to see those for what they are. They're distractions. See, when you aim your attention on material things, you cannot give God your full attention. See, we'd like to think, I can keep one eye on God, and I can have one eye on the world, right? I can have one eye on God and have my fill of vanity fair, but that is another lie. And listen, even if you could do it, God is not after your divided heart. He is not pleased with your divided attention. God deserves, and friends, he actually demands our undivided attention. Number two, this is another common distraction, the routine of every day. I hear this one so often. It, this one is, is one that constantly gets me. So much of life is routine and ordinary, isn't it? You get up, you get to work, shuffle the kids off to school, eat a few meals, kids get to bed, maybe watch some Netflix, and then we do it all over again. Rinse and repeat. Our lives and calendars can look the same from week to week. And when that happens, we can get lulled into the boredom and busyness of it all. And when that happens, we believe the lie that the everyday, ordinary realities of life are just meaningless. And when that happens, we miss what God has for us in the beautiful, ordinary, and extremely meaningful day-to-day realities of life. Instead of aiming our attention at him, we're just focused on getting through the day. How many of you say, I have to get through this week? Well, you've already lost, right? Your attention is not on God meeting you in it. And before you know it, you live like that, what happens? A decade passes you by. You look back and you go, where 
did the time go? Number three, another distraction is suffering and trial. Now this is a big one because suffering and trial come for us all. Suffering is incredibly indiscriminate. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, suffering will come for us all. You live life long enough and you will experience suffering. I was thinking about our church this week. Many names came to mind. Specifics of suffering in our midst. These are not made up. These are happening right now at Seven Mile Road. There are people in our church right now experiencing financial instability. That grind of living month to month. Chronic illness where there there is no medication or treatment. You're resigned to living a life of pain. Being pulled into addiction. Feeling the lure every day to go back. The loss of miscarriage. The loneliness of relationships not working out. I mean, the list goes on. We could just keep on going. And when we feel the pain, when we feel the loss, it's easy. It's even understandable to turn your attention away from God and to only focus on the pain. That is human nature and it's understandable but listen to me god does not demand or even encourage you to go through life stoically to just grit your teeth bury your pain like it isn't there he actually invites us he says when it hurts when suffering and trials come when you feel the pain you're actually invited to feel it so when you need to cry family hear me cry when it hurts Hurt with it. When you need to talk to someone, talk to someone. But most importantly, do not believe the lie that your pain and suffering are meaningless examples of living in a cruel world with an uncaring God who is sitting idly by. For the believer, every ounce of your pain every second of your suffering the bible says in second corinthians 4 17 that it this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are seen unseen are eternal look at me right now here's what that means it means that for the believer Your suffering, your trial is never meaningless. It is never wasted. It is always doing something, even if you can't see it. It's always building your character. It is always strengthening you. And it is, in the background, producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison to the suffering we are currently experiencing. Paul was a man well acquainted with suffering, probably experiencing suffering that none of us have ever uh, suffered. And he said, he could say with boldness, all that I've suffered is light and momentary compared with the eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for me now. You don't get it now. That prepared glory is given to you in the life to come. So he says these words, Fix your eyes, not on what is seen. See, it's easy to fix your eyes on what you see, the pain and suffering in front of you. He says you've got to shift your attention. You have to shift your attention on God himself, who is like a good father, preparing an eternal weight of glory that will make whatever you're going through right now pale in comparison. 
And you can bank your life on the promise that none of your suffering is ever meaningless and it is never wasted. Never. Seven mile, what are the distractions that are competing for your attention? Is it love of the world? Is it this the routine of everyday life? Is it trial and suffering? Who or what has your undivided attention? It's the most important question we could answer today. So far, we've seen how our attention is aimed by desire and it's sustained by diligence. Let's quickly finally close by looking at how our attention is fueled by delight. Verse 22. Wisdom speaking again. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was there beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in this inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. We read these verses, we are getting like a behind the curtain scene at this time before time began. I don't even, I was trying to, that that sentence, I I couldn't figure out how to write that sentence, right? Because there's no such thing as time before time. You don't, we don't even have mental categories to talk about. This is before creation, before there was anything, before creation, God existed. And we see here that wisdom was active in the work of creation. Wisdom was right beside God like a master workman, bringing the plans of God to fruition. If you're acquainted with the Bible, you should be thinking about Genesis 1 right now, that first chapter of the Bible where we see God speaking creation into existence. That verbal expression of God's wisdom, his word bringing creation forth itself. When you read the book of Genesis, there's this refrain, this chorus that goes on and on. When you read it, it says, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And we see the Father creating by the power of his word. And what is veiled, what is hidden in shadows in the book, in, in the book of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, even here in the book of Proverbs, is revealed and on glorious display when we turn to the New Testament. That's why the uh, uh, Apostle John, when he wrote um, his gospel, said these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In light of the New Testament, we see that there's more to wisdom than first meets the eye. That this personification of wisdom is actually a person. The wisdom of God is the word of God who is the son of God become flesh to dwell among us. You could even read John 1 like this. In the beginning was the wisdom and the wisdom was with God and the wisdom was God and the wisdom became flesh and dwelled among us. The apostle Paul makes this connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, 
And because of him, you are in Christ who became wisdom from God. Now, there is so much that could be said about this. The commentary sections on this get very long. We could mine the depths of this passage and passages like it. We could walk through scripture after scripture in the Old Testament to see the glimpses and shadows that point us to Jesus. We could explore the beauty and the reality of the Holy Trinity for weeks on end, and it would actually be my delight to do that. But I have time left to show you one thing here that will fuel your attention because of delight. Look with me again at verse 30. Now picture this, Jesus speaking, I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always and rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. When we look at this passage in light of the reality that it is no one other than the Son of God speaking, we see the Son of God working right next to God the Father and there was this relationship of reciprocating delight And not only are they delighting in each other, not only are they delighting in the creation they made, who are they delighting in? The children of man, delighting in us. Can you just stop for a moment and give me your attention? Look at me. God delights in you. That is profound. He does not just tolerate you. He's not just fine with you. He doesn't just put up with you. God delights in you. Right there, clear as day. He was delighting in the children of man. This is an invitation to join him in this relationship of ever increasing joy and delight. As the father delights in the son, as the son delights in the father, they are delighting in you. And there's this invitation asking, will you delight in him? Will you reciprocate? Pastor John Piper, in reflecting on why God might delight in us, once said, God makes much of us. He delights in us precisely so that we will have a greater capacity to enjoy him. See, when you let that truth sink deep into your heart, that God delights in you, it just opens up your heart. It's like the Grinch where his heart grew three sizes that day. When you realize God loves you, and he delights in you. It increases your capacity to love him in return. God's delight in us is the fuel that focuses your attention on him. And his love and delight in you is not abstract. It is not theoretical. It's proven. Look with me at Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're going, I don't believe it. I do not believe that God delights in me. Here is the proof. God so delights in you to the point that he was willing to send his son to die for you and me. And when that truth becomes real, not in theory, not in abstraction, it will fuel your delight in God. And when that happens, the object of your greatest delight will be the object of your greatest attention. So when our attention is aimed by what we desire. When it's sustained by diligence, it will be fueled by delight. And when you give your undivided attention to God, it will begin to define and determine your life and it will set you on a course to thrive and flourish. So as we reflect and respond, ask yourself, who or what do I pay attention to? Let's pray.